Hi, everyone. This is Brooke James. And this is Megan Reardon Jarvis. And I am so excited for our first crossover episode in our series on dating after death. I host Grief Coach, which is where you are listening to this right now. And Megan hosts a podcast called Grief is My Side Hustle. Megan, thank you so much for being here today. My friend, I am delighted to be here today. We're talking about a really important topic. We absolutely are. This is going to be the first of a series where we talk about dating and relationships after loss. For those of you who have listened to my podcast before, have heard me talk a little bit about that this is something that I was grappling with and was important to me as my dad died when I was 30. And Megan and I connected and thought this was a really interesting thing to explore. So I'm so excited to have this conversation today. Me too. All right. For those who are listening uh, to me for the first time and found me through Megan, I will give a brief background of my story and then Megan will share hers for uh, listeners who have not listened to the episode that her and I did together, episode 55 of this podcast. So my dad got sick and was diagnosed in September of 2018 with a rare, very aggressive type of cancer. And his timeline from diagnosis to death was just over six months. I stopped working the week we put him in hospice because uh, while I was working, I was traveling every week for work. And that was really stressful for me to be traveling home and then at my dad's house on the merry-go-round of hell, as I affectionately referred to it. So after he passed in April of 2019, I realized that a lot of people didn't know how to talk about death um, and about grief. And I thought that that was crazy. The project started that it was going to be a book. I realized that that was really hard. So I decided to start a podcast, which started in November of 2019, really looking to explore stories for those who were grieving, build a place for grief adjacent people to learn how to better support those grieving and to also highlight innovations in the death space because it is an industry right for innovation. So that is high level, my story and what the podcast is. And Megan, if you want to just introduce yourself so the audience has perspective on where you're coming from in this conversation. Sure. Thanks, Brooke. Um, My name is Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I have a platform called Grief is My Side Hustle, which is, it's a bunch of things. It's a website. It's a grief writing workshop. It is recently a podcast and it's becoming a memoir. It's all kinds, it's all kinds of stuff. I am trauma therapist with about 20 years experience in the field and I specialize in grief and loss. So that's, those are my credentials. The way I would tell you that I, you know, really got my card punched with grief and loss. My dad died in 2017 after a year long battle with small cell cancer. And that loss was one that I really participated in. I knew he was dying from the time I got his diagnosis. My dad and I had sort of a bumpy relationship that really was so, we really appreciated each other in that last year of his death. So while it was incredibly hard and very sad, it was beautiful in a lot of ways. In 2019, after just a really short illness, my mom died suddenly. And in her sleep while I was on vacation with her, with my kids and my husband and my dog. And that was completely traumatizing. So I was a traumatized trauma therapist. My neural system, like completely overwhelmed. I had PTSD, which are all those intrusive thoughts and pictures. 
I didn't think I was going crazy because that's literally what I treat. So I knew exactly what was happening to me, but it turns out that all the master's degrees and all the education doesn't stop those things from happening. So I ended up checking myself into the same facility that I had checked many of my patients into and did all the treatments. So saw every, all the uh, work from the inside. And when I came out from there, I've been doing just as Brooke described, kind of looking at what the resources are that exist. And for me, that was a ton of reading. I keep saying I've read 88 books, but it has got to be more than that because I read 88 books a year ago. Just kind of always looking for the framework of support that we need. And this particular podcast is covering a whole. There, There really isn't a lot out there to support people who are newly bereaved as widows that have, you know, single parents who lost children, young people in the dating world. And what Brooke and I both know me, I've been, I've been married. Oh my God. I don't know how long, 16 or 17 years, something like that. And I have three kids. I've been married a long time, but I specialize in attachment and what we know is when you have a primary attachment loss, when your world gets rocked by, by, you know, someone leaving you in the most permanent way that filters into a lot of your other relationships. So what our hope is to talk about, to bring on guests who are going to highlight some of those things, tell us about what they did and then sort of break down why that might be happening, what other supports they might be able to avail themselves of. And, you know, maybe they're going to have really genius answers for us that we haven't heard before. So we've got a great lineup of folks who are going to be really brave to come on and talk to us and tell us their story. But today we're just going to, we're going to chat just Brooke and I. Yes. And I am so excited. So as I mentioned, I was 30 when my dad died. And one thing that even before he died, he was older. I'm from his third marriage. And so is my younger brother. And then I have two sisters from his first marriage. But I remember being like 24 and being like, I need to find someone to have kids with. So, you know, my kids. And he would be like, you're being crazy. Like, don't rush it for me. <laughs> like, and, but it was always something that was top of mind for me because he was older. That's an interesting, that's interesting, Brooke, to hear that, like you were already anticipating the loss of him and wanting to protect yourself against that, even well, before he was ill. He was just cool. So I like wanted my future kids to know him, yeah. you know, and family is, you know, I know everyone, family is important to everybody or to most of us, but my family is really, really close and it's big and we spend a lot of time together like my two best friends are my cousins who are my age like during college after college my dad and I got really 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 close and that was something like on my mind as he was starting to get a little bit older and I just he was like you cannot rush this for me and I remember him like when he was sick and him and I were talking about it and I expressed like I was upset that like he would never my kids would never meet him he was like well they'll know me through you because of like what I've taught you. And I was like, yeah, okay. But like, that's yeah, not, that's not good enough. That's, that's not, not good enough. That's not good enough, dad. Like, come on. But it was something that him and I talked about, which I'm really grateful for since I was 30 when he died. Like, and you know, I have ovaries that are like, you know, fixed Aging. amount. Right. I was remember having this thought process of like, I don't know, can I, I can't stop dating because I need to like find someone to get married and have kids with, which is also like, 
you know, I'd be interested in your thought as a therapist, but like that, that was something I was thinking of like six months out. I yeah. think, I don't know. Is that unique that, or like, is that a thing? people? Yeah. Think about? Well, I, I mean, I don't know if the thought is unique. What, what I'm hearing you say is that you had like this defended stance, right? Like you were already feeling the vulnerability of having lost your dad and feeling mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, I'm, you know, I think, I think, women in their thirties or whatever number we want to pick, because I feel like I hear it at all different ages, feel a pressure around the idea of dating and partnering up. And partly I think that's like societal, like I, women's are, are held to this standard around dating, which is sort of like, it's a life achievement, like graduating from college or that doesn't exist for men. And, and, and what men maybe don't understand is it also has this weird competitive element amongst women, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, you know, you have a longtime boyfriend. What did they do? Like, why does that matter? Instead of what does your relationship make you feel like? Like, are you in a relationship that feels like one that you would want to be in for a long time? And in those early days in, in late twenties, early thirties, but depending on what part of the country you're in, it could be at any point but your cohort is sort of that female cohort is trying to figure that out. So I imagine you're in your thirties, you're already doing that dance amongst all of your friends and family, which is like, people are like, Oh, does Brooke have a boyfriend? Is she dating? Is she, because there's something about that, that people just feel better when you found your person. They're like, okay, she makes more sense to me. Now I can see what her life looks like certainly for the individual, Ooh, I make sense to me now. I can see what my life looks like. Like there's this element of relief. And sometimes we don't choose well because we're interested in the relief and sort of locking down the result than we are able to sort of figure out how it feels. So in dating, you and I talked about this the last time that um, we recorded, but your brain's all jacked up. Like we've got data. It's jacked up. In fact, I was just reading this book by a neuroscientist that likens it to a concussion. It's like having a fucking concussion. So imagine trying to date with a concussion, like the notion that you've already got all this other, you know, societal garbage about like, oh, your ovaries are getting older. And then we add in like, and I have this whole backstory of grief and loss, which means attachment is absolutely traumatized and scary for me. I may behave like, you know, in one of many ways, like I have seen, I have more than one client that was very casually dating someone when their mother, father, sister, whomever died. And that person is now a permanent person in their life. And I'm not going to say like, dun, 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 permanent part. And they won the Disney prize. Like that person is a permanent part in their life. And it was partly fueled by grief. Yeah. And it, and that, maybe wasn't the best fuel in every one of those examples. So I've seen that, which is relationships that get super intense really fast because my mom just died and I need to like cleave to someone in my sorrow. And I have seen people who are, they just want to have a lot of sex with people. They just want to feel good. They just want to go out dancing. They just want to drop some pills. They just don't want to feel the grief. Mm -hmm. And that can, you know, that kind of behavior you can, and I'm not judging it for a second, we've all done it, but that kind of behavior can beget sort of more of that behavior. And you can wake up a year later and be like, oh my God, what was I doing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I want to go back to the thing you said about 
this like societal pressure yes. because m- my dad would make jokes like TikTok, TikTok, and I'd be like, you're an asshole. <laughs> and, but I remember, so I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast that like my friends and I, like 10 of us would go out like every weekend of the summer and it was fun and food and pool and like whatever. But one day we were sitting around the kitchen island and we were talking about weddings and he comes in and he's like, his office is like right off the kitchen. And he's like, don't none of you have boyfriends? And we were like, none of us have boyfriends. He's like, so what the hell are you doing? And I was like, dad, it's so much easier to plan a wedding than find someone to marry. And he just like looked at me and like shook his head. <laughs> what are these girls doing? And, but I, like that really goes back to like the societal pressure. And it's something that like women think about. Like as, cause it's not only like, yes, you found someone that like you like enough and they like enough to like build a life with, but it's also like the ring, the wedding, the like, oh, we have kids now. Like all of this stuff that women I think are measured on a lot more than men. So I'm gonna be interested in our conversations of who is mentioning what as we're talking to yeah, them. Yeah, you I know, that's and- important. What, and one of the things that I think about a lot, I mean, I think about this personally. So I, on Wednesdays, we're not doing it now because of COVID, but there's a group of women who I have had drinks with and burgers with since like before there were any partners, babies, any of that stuff. It's been a long time, like yeah. ni- since 1996. So, you know, we've run through that gamut together. And so we've had a lot of those conversations and then alongside parallel to that, I, you know, have been aging and as a therapist. And so there are many people that I worked with while they tried to find a relationship now are getting out of that relationship and sort of what the arc is around that. And, and it is interesting to me that there, and again, like, I'm not interested, I'm not trying to talk along broad gender lines. there's usually a dynamic in a relationship where one person would like there to be more obvious attachment and the other person is a little bit more aloof. So like one person is sort of anxious about, do you like me? Do you like me? Pick me, pick me. Are you going to pick me? And then there's another person who's sort of like, I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll see. And they're not being dicks. They're just, that's how, that's what their stance is. And I remember when I met my husband being sort of amazed. I mean, my husband is the best person on the planet, but I didn't know that when I met him, you know, I was just suspicious he might be a good guy. And I just remember how totally relaxed he was Mm -hmm. about like the idea of getting married and family. And I was sort of like, well, you're not all that. You're just like a normal guy. Like, why should you have the arrogance to believe that it's all going to work out for you? And I did not. And I was sort of like, I got degrees. I got my own job. You know, like there were some markers that I was like, if any, if out of the two of us, anyone should feel relaxed about like, it's all going to work out. Okay. I think it should be me, (laughs) but it is not me for some reason. And that's when I started to sort of observe that like, there are these attachment styles. And so they don't, they don't necessarily divide out as men are, are aloof and women are anxious, but it, but often, but often (laughs) they do anxious attachment sometimes comes from, you know, like not having caregivers who were hard to get their attention. 
Not always. Sometimes there was trauma, sometimes early death, you know, anxiety, that anxious attachment stuff can, can come from lots of different places and we can explore it. But I do think that at least in this Western culture, men are not pressured in the same way. I, I'm absolutely, if we had a phone board right now, it'd be lighting up and people would be like, yes, my mother asks me every day when I'm going to find a woman. But in general, from the qualitative, like numbers of hundreds of clients that I've helped, women feel an internal external pressure that is often surprising to men. It is often surprising to them. It's surprising. That's crazy. Cause I feel like, I mean, I guess as a woman, I'm just like hyper aware of it because it affects me, but that men are so like, I want to say something mean, like men are so oblivious that they don't know that this happens. Like, how is that possible? Well, so, I mean, I think they're oblivious that it ha that it happens because it doesn't happen to them. There's not the same like high five, man, you did it. You have the ring on your finger. You locked in somebody with a good salary. I mean, I sort of hate the way that sounds when it comes out of my mouth, except you and I both know that that's a real thing. Even though women uh -huh. are working to buy their own shit every day now, that still lingers. And let me give you an example of a client I had a million years ago. So just so everybody knows, when I talk about clients, I always like change the gender, change their names. None of my clients are going to hear this and be like, oh my God, she was talking about me on the podcast. Right. And having said that, I wrote about this as a case study. So this person, I already have permission to share their story. So this person was in a man in his like early thirties, and he was really anxious about dating. He was very good looking, very sweet, but always felt like women were disdainful of him. And it doesn't even really matter. We don't have to go into the deep, dark why of that, but a lot of it came from how he was treated as a kid. Mm -hmm. So he would show up on dates and feel like from the beginning, the women were like, he's not good enough. He doesn't make enough money. So he was anxious all the time from like absolutely the very beginning of everything. And I said to him, well, what do you, what do you think's happening for the women? And he was like, oh, you know, they're looking at me and thinking, you know, he's not good enough for me. Why would I date a guy like this? Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so every woman you've ever gone out with, and he, he dated a lot, every woman you've ever gone out with, that is what they're thinking. They're looking at you and thinking he's not good enough. And again, he was a totally normal looking person. They can tell already that you don't have any money. How would they know if they're in a restaurant? How can they tell these things? And he was really, it was like, he couldn't see past his own dinner plate. And so the next week when he came in, I was like, I would like you, I, I had like Oprah magazine. I remember Oprah was there like shape or self, like exercise magazines, a bunch of, a bunch of women's magazines that, that would normally be in a waiting room. And I said, let's pretend you're a 25 year old woman, just pick up a magazine and tell me what the message in that magazine is. And he flipped it over and was like, I don't think there's a message here. And I'm like, you don't think there's a message on that page about what kind of handbag you should carry? Are you sure? That's a $2,000 handbag. That message is you don't have the right handbag, turn the page. Next page is like extra long triple X lashes. And he's like, well, I guess you could buy mascara. And I'm like, that's not the message. The message is whatever your lashes look like, they are not, they are not long enough and they are not fat enough. So smart guy, he figures it out. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that when I'm sitting there feeling anxious 
that this person is not going to pick me. There is a chance that she is sitting there feeling the same way. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. And that is the part that I think people miss. That is the part that like, just because you have these strong feelings, they are not a neutral event that's happening to you. They have all their own garbage feelings about what you said or what you did. They're interpreting all your stuff in all kinds of ways. And so when I'm talking to people about this, particularly with grief, what I want them to know is you have new garbage because of the grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've been smiling this whole time while I was talking about this. Well, because it's like so true. And like, I have an anxious attachment style that I don't know if it's gotten like more since my dad died. Cause it's been like that for a long time, but certainly I remember going out on dates like the summer and fall after, and like, yeah. after I started the podcast where I would tell people, cause like my story is kind of like, it's non-traditional. It's like, well, I was in a management consulting for eight years. And then now I'm like working in health and wellness and like working in advertising and like, you know, I had all of these clients that I was doing contractor work for and advising work and like, that's already like what. And so people would be like, what do you do? And I'd be like, well, like I have my own like consulting business and I have a podcast and no one ever asked about the consulting business. Like everyone asked what's the podcast. And so I'd be like, it's about grief and loss. And people would be like, well, why do you start that? Because that's like a Right. To, to right. choose just spend about sour jelly beans. That's what right. my podcast is about. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, my dad died. And like, I went on a couple of dates with people who were like, oh, I lost my dad. Like, that's cool. You're doing that. But most people, and I would like breeze over it. I would be like, okay, now we have to just like sit and talk about this. Right. But like, I don't know if like, because I was so open about it or like, what does it signal to people that I have the emotional capacity to do this every week? Like, I don't know. I've thought about like, well, is that something people think about of, well, she has, she can think about this. Like, are her expectations of communication different? Like, you know, making a story up in my head. No one's ever said anything like this to me. Yeah. But so I stopped telling people that's what I did. And I've been seeing this guy now. I don't know what nickname we want to give him. I'll think of something, but I didn't tell him what the podcast was about until like six weeks in and I wouldn't let him listen for like two and a half months. And I, then when I was like, you can listen, I was like, you can listen to this episode. Like <laughs> The rest are so, locked. Right. And so it's just like kind of interesting. And I wonder like for people listening of like who are dating, do you experiment for when you tell people and like, what does that look like? So any thoughts on that? I don't know what worked or patients of yours, like anything like that, because that's something I think a lot of people grapple with of like, okay, when do I tell this new exciting person, this huge thing that happened to me? I think, I mean, I can't necessarily say about grief and loss, although I certainly have worked with children who've had loss, who don't are moving schools and are moving lives and don't want to be seen as like the girl whose brother died kind of stuff and have made really concrete decisions about how they want to reveal that piece of information. But I think essentially, I think what we're talking about is 
similar to any piece of really precious private information that you think someone else might react to, right? Like yeah. how do you own that story? And with dating, we're so vulnerable because we want to figure out, do I like you? Do you like me? And in the early stages of dating, I mean, unless, you know, uh, unless you're a certain personality type, you're not going to dump all of your emotional garbage on the table, like Ali Sheedy in the breakfast club. Like you are going to dumps out her handbag and everything's in there. And it's like, okay, we can see all that craziness. In general, I think what we do is we try to titrate out the pieces that we think someone might react to, right? So mm -hmm. it could be, we could be talking about anything. We could be talking about like sexually tra transmitted diseases, children, health conditions, money. You know, I know so many people that have like, have no money and don't want to tell anyone, have a shit ton of money and don't want to tell anyone, right. are connected to something famous, a famous person or a famous event or a... You know, I worked with people who after September 11th, you know, year, several years after were sort of like, I don't want to tell this story to just anyone because I don't like the way that people show up and kind of want to take a bite out of me. Mm -hmm. And so I think the thing that's the most important in dating after a loss is that like anything, working after loss, exercising after loss, eating after loss, is, is that you are taking care of yourself. So if you imagine that like, there's this little, to me, the way that I always think about it is like, there's a little vulnerable me, like a little girl. And she needs to know that I have her back at all times. Mm -hmm. Does it feel okay to her that we're out here at dinner and I'm going to start talking about this thing that often makes her cry or often makes her feel afraid. So when I'm talking to people about their vulnerable thing, what I don't love is when people, and I think we're going to have my friend Paul is going to come on and talk about the, his experience with this, is when, because it feels out of, out of control, people just throw it out there. Like, oh my God, my mom died. And then it's like, oh my God. And I said this to you before, whether it's in dating or not, people in, who have been grievers for some period of time will tell you that they do this. They cannot control the narrative. I mean, I had this experience one time in Starbucks where some very nice person. I had like put real clothes on, wasn't crying. And a nice person was like, Hey, are you having a good day? And I was like, actually, my mom just died and I'm having a really hard time. This was a total stranger. And he looked yeah. at me like you would, which was lady. I did not want to know this. Like I was just trying to get my latte. And afterwards I felt like a certain amount of shame, right? Which was like, I didn't protect that little one who's so vulnerable. I didn't, she felt bad that I had like shared this piece of the story. So I think part of it in early grief is that you have to get a hold of your narrative. Like when I'm interviewing people for my podcast, I, I ask that question, like, where are you on that narrative path? Like if, when I went to treatment, I couldn't even say the words, my mom died without like going all the way under the water and touching the deepest drain of sorrow. But you have to, in order to live in the world, come up with a series of sentences that don't like pull you like an alligator under the water where you're going to drown. And so what I say to folks when they're talking about dating is like, we need to get that narrative down so that you can feel regulated and okay when you say it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we try it out, say it early, say it late, or just trust that you'll know when to say it. But having a narrative having a sentence, my dad had cancer, he died. 
and not having that make you want to go to the bathroom and throw up is probably incredibly important in, in making you feel safe to be connected to this person. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I would also like to explore this concept that a lot of people do. And I've talked with a few people about on the podcast previously, but like this weird thing that we as grievers do of like, you'll be like, oh, you'll share this information. And then the person's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And you're like, it's okay. And it's like, it's not okay. But like, you are trying to like protect against the pity that you know is coming. Yeah. But pity is such an important word, right? So if we think about all the words that are around grief and loss, pity is probably the least we ever want to feel. Pity means I'm up here high and I'm looking down at you and I feel so bad for you. That doesn't, I mean, nobody likes pity at any point, but pity and grief and loss means that person has no idea what my experience So, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have this experience, but since I've had this like earth shattering loss, I look back at some events in my life where I was clearly in the presence of someone who like me had an earth shattering loss and I could feel they felt off, but I really did not understand what was wrong with them. I did Mm -hmm. not. I mean, I'm thinking about like 15 years ago, a friend from high school came into town and her mom had died. And in my mind, like she and her mom weren't even that close. And when I saw her, she just, I was like, maybe she has an eating disorder. Like she just was like a shell of herself. And after my mom died, I wrote to her and was like, I am so sorry. I did not understand. But like, I thought of you almost instantly when I looked at my own shell of a self in the mirror and was like, that is what I, that is what I saw. Mm-hmm. And so I think there, I think there is this concept of like, there are people who know and people who don't know. And when we're saying like, no, no, it's fine. It's okay. It's good. I think part of what we're trying to do is be like, um, let me show you my vulnerability, but before you even get a chance to react, I'm going to tell you that it's manageable. You do not need to freak out about this. This is not going to be too much for you. It's not going to be too much for me. As opposed to just letting somebody have a reaction, mm-hmm. right? Because I think the most loving is when people are curious about it, when they say, what was that like for you? How has that been for you? Mm-hmm. Well, and that comment about vulnerability, I think it's so important because at the end of the day, like dating generally is really vulnerable. Exactly. And so if you have a loss in your life that you then need to share with someone that certainly adds a layer of complexity, I don't want to say deeper vulnerability, but it's just different than anything else you would be vulnerable about. That is really for a lot of people difficult to share and it's difficult to be vulnerable anyway. And we can all joke about like, we build these like emotional walls up and there's like all these memes about it now on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But it's a real thing that at the end of the day, we're all scared to be vulnerable. And I've told you this story. I've told this story on the podcast, but my dad was like this like big dinner. We were like 24. My two cousins who I mentioned earlier, we were all so upset over these boys who were dating. None of us are talking to these boys anymore, right, of course. <laughs> but, right. but we were all like distressed. And he was like, Brooke, like, why don't you write a letter? And I was like, you can't do that. Like, that's crazy. Like, I'm not going to write this guy a letter. And he's like, you need to tell him how you feel because otherwise like nothing 
is going to happen and like vulnerability is where all like deep meaningful connection comes from and i was like dad <laughs> like <laughs> i don't like, think you're hip to the new nonsense dad Kids we don't we don't, we don't do that and he's like yeah. no you have to and so now i'm on like this big vulnerability kick like and try to think of it as like a way to honor him but it's love that. terrifying because when you're dating or at least when i'm dating and then like i know i do that thing of like but like no i'm good i'm good like and you know so bizarre you just made a million good points i'm gonna see oh, if, I can, <laughs> if i can track a couple of them but i think one and the most primary is we are at a different level of vulnerability after a primary loss that we didn't choose and yeah. everything i mean i remember like a friend every day asking me if i wanted to go get lunch and me being like i just don't think i can like handle navigating people and an outside sidewalk like there yeah. were so many like just my sensory experience made me feel so stripped down bare mm -hmm. that i was vulnerable in this way that was really hard to manage dating is choosing to be vulnerable right i mean that's a choice that's a stepping in you cannot when i work with people and they're like megan i just don't i can't handle it i just want to skip to the fourth date where i go to his apartment and we make spaghetti and we watch netflix and i'm like yeah well then don't date because you got to earn that space you have to earn that kind of date which you do through getting to know each other anything right. else is just forced false intimacy and i think so what you said that i think is really important is there's a difference between choosing to be vulnerable and just being vulnerable. There are times in our lives when we just are vulnerable mm -hmm. and we have to navigate that space with that little vulnerable girl trying to take care of her as best we can. But we are gonna look to each other and admit and say, this is where we are, honey. I, we don't have a choice about this. I'm gonna do mm -hmm. the best I can, you tell me if you need more from me, but we got to like move forward. It's like a Tom Cruise end of the world movie where we're trying to get to the bus so that we can get out of this wasteland. I think that's different than choosing to be vulnerable. And, and the reason, and, and dating is one of those things. I think part of what you were describing was you may have been more vulnerable than you understood when you were choosing to date at six months. Mm right? That you were vulnerable in this way that's new and you were taking on a new level of vulnerability. And so like everything else, the kind of better we know what's under the hood, you know, I'm writing right now, I'm writing this memoir and I am a new writer. And so I have this writing group and this fellowship. And when I get on, I say to them, you guys, you all just read your pieces. They were amazing. I right now am terrified that mine is garbage. I am terrified of how you're going to respond, but I'm going to do it anyway. Right. Six months after my mom died, I don't think I could have been in a writer's group where people were going to maybe tell me they didn't like my word choice about something that may have actually split me open. So I think part of what we might be talking to our listeners about is how to make the choice of how much vulnerability to move into. Does that make sense? I think that's a great nuance to talk about because I think you're right. I think I was more vulnerable than I thought because I was like, no, I'm fine now. I'm good. Like, it's like, it's been six months. Like you're not good. <laughs> and, um, and now it's two years. And I shared with that guy who I mentioned earlier, 
And he was like, thank you for being vulnerable with yeah. me. And I like mind blown. I was like, what the hell? He is thanking me for being right. vulnerable. I'm just telling him my life. And it was very confusing to me. Yeah. I also should say like, normally, like I don't go on a lot of dates with the same person. So um, it's just like, I don't know. It's like interesting territory to be in, to have someone respect the vulnerability. I think it's right. really and also important. cause the vulnerability, right? Because if you're going on a date with the same person over and over, that's vulnerable because that's territory you haven't been in before. So mm-hmm. it might not be the same kind of vulnerability to start and sort of reveal my dad died, but it's it's new territory, which is, you know, I'm trying to navigate this space. I mean, one of the things I've said to you and I say on my podcast all the time is when my daughter was born, she, her birth and and my being pregnant with her created a mother part of me that never existed before that will never go away. Mm-hmm. When we're in, you know, we're out in the world, I'm six months out from my mom dying. When I was six months out from my mom dying, I'm still trying to become a griever. I'm not there yet. I don't, you know, I have three kids now. My oldest is 13. Like when Lucy was born, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm a mom. Like I'm a mom. I can't <laughs> I'm a mom. And now I'm like, what the hell? I'm the mom. Shut up. Listen to me. I am the mom. It's the same, I think, with grief. I mean, many, many people have said to me, you know, that little secret code that we talked to each other about, this thing that I did both with my mom and my dad, I would roll over and be like, I can't believe they died. Every night for like a year, I would be like, I just can't believe it. I can't believe that's what happened. I don't do that anymore. I mean, you know, we're headed into two years with my mom. I'm headed into four years with my dad. I don't do that anymore. So whatever that part of grieving and growing is I've grown that part, which is like, apparently I can believe it now, but there's still, you know, I wonder sometimes about the existential rocking in the corner, sucking on my thumb that I do sometimes about like, is the world ever going to be, some of that might be COVID, but I know that some of it is also that my, I don't have that backstop of parents. And so I just feel different. I feel more vulnerable in the world than I did before when I had their like love behind me. Mm-hmm. I am not interested in having any relationships of any kind, even with my mailman, with people who can't tolerate that. <laughs> like any person in my life, I want them to come in and be able to be like, yep, loss is a part of life. But that yeah. version of me that I was, you know, if that I, I think about my friend coming and sitting through that lunch with me and how painful that must have been for her because she would have totally understood that I really was not all that interested in her story because I was so far from it. It made no sense to me. I really wanted to know like who had she run into from high school and she was blown apart. I, as a 47 year old woman would not sit through that lunch. I, I have left similar experience where I'm like, I get it. This vulnerability that I have that I am, I can't tuck back into my pockets and I don't want to is not really welcome at this table. And I can't sit here. So I imagine with dating, there's that fine line of like, I want to be bright and shiny for you. Cause I want to find out if you can like me and if I can like you, and I don't want to sit longer than I have to next to someone who can't tolerate the truth of me. Mm-hmm. Which is really a difficult balance in yes. early stages of date. It has to be right. Like it has to be. Cause also you're trying to order dinner and maybe you've had a drink and you're talking about a friend, like how do we well, get you're trying there? to be like cute and sparkly, as you said, because you want them to like you and like, while you're figuring out, do you like them? And 
It's very weird. Yeah. And I know some people who are not trying to be cute and sparkly who come in and they're sort of like, this is who I am and this is how bad it is. Can you handle it? And that isn't a face because that's crazy. Right. But that's how some people do dating. Some people do dating of like, I'm going to try to push you away. I'm going to show you how bad it is right now. And you can walk if you want to. And I won't even feel rejected because that's, you know, your fault. So is that person an avoidant attachment style? Probably. I mean, yeah, I mean, probably the early, like if we were to do a game show and put people at a table and do a quick analysis of their dating, like we probably wouldn't get the attachment styles perfectly right on the Mm -hmm. first date. Usually you don't see how it shows up until there's some kind of stress. You know, there's one, and and I think I've talked to you about this before, the guy that I trained with, whose name is Stan Tacton, wrote a book called Wired for Love, which if people are listening to this and are interested in attachment styles, it's a little book that makes a lot of sense. You don't need to go become a neurologist. You don't need to go learn, you know, get a master's degree in attachment or psychology. Stan wrote this beautiful book that explains in very basic science, kind of how we are who we are. And like all the anagrams and the Myers-Briggs, like you will figure out which one you are by looking at it. And that's really helpful. And so, you know, he has his own language for it, but essentially there's islands and waves. Waves are the people who are sort of pursuing you. Like I, we got into a fight and I want to meet, let's go have lunch and we can work this out. Mm -hmm. And islands are, we got into a fight. I'll call you in a few days. I need to downregulate and calm my system down. And you feel like a threat to me. And unsurprisingly, islands and waves are often in relationships together. So you can see where we would get in trouble. Wait, I have a question about islands and waves because this is like my fighting style now. So I feel like I'm generally a wave. Like I'm- I believe you're right. I believe you're right, Brooke. We've discussed. But if I'm in a fight with someone, something I started doing more, I would say in the past like a year, is I will be like, I am not going to talk to you until I figure out what I'm going to say and like cool off. Awesome. And I'll say like, I don't want to say anything I can't take back, but that seems more island behavior than wave no. behavior. No, that's so wave that's behavior. confusing that's, to me. No, no, it is? So that's, that's wave behavior, but that's wave behavior with some responsibility. So, you know, love to see it. Therapy works. Look at you, girl. (laughs) Because, because what I've said to you before, you know, Stan's language is really gorgeous around this. What he talks about is like having each other's owner's manuals and staying in a bubble together that you're not playing poker against each other. You're playing poker with each other Mm -hmm. so that you need to understand each other's needs. And if you and I are in a relationship together, my job is not to meet your needs. That's codependency. That's not what we're looking for interdependency is what we're looking for, which is I'm going to care about your needs. So if I know you want coffee in the morning, maybe I'm going to bring you coffee because I love you. That's different than you expect me to bring you coffee because you told me that you like coffee in the morning. And when I didn't bring you coffee, I failed the test, which is what sometimes happens for people, right? So what you described was I had a big amount of emotion. My instinct the part, that part of me that wants this resolved knows that it wants to run to you and have a fight about it. But I have enough regulation. I have enough like metacognition. I'm thinking about this enough to know if I do that, that's probably not going to work out well because I've done that before. It doesn't work out well. So I'm going to hold on and cool off. And then I'm going to try to talk to you 
in a way that's not going to overwhelm you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the person who sends you 700 texts when you are like, fuck off. And then they send you 700 texts. That person is so anxious right now. Like they need you to just, in fact, they're so anxious. They might make you break up with them because that at least is a resolution. And that is very wave-like activity. An island is a person who gets overwhelmed. Oh my God, I'm so angry at her because she was late and it felt really disrespectful. Or I feel so misunderstood by him because he said he thought I was being condescending and I wasn't. And I need to step away and cool off and downregulate. So it's not like a metacognition. I'm not resisting or correcting an old behavior. Mm -hmm. I just am pulling away and I'm going to take some deep breaths. I'm going to take a walk and I'm going to cool my system down. What happens with islands where we ask them to sort of like stretch a little bit is to understand that if you're with a wave, you pulling away feels like death to that wave. The Mm -hmm. wave is really anxious and wants you to come and resolve. And when you don't resolve to them, it's really aggressive. So in Stan's work, what we ask that person to do is come and say, I love you. I am not leaving you. I am too overwhelmed by this conversation and I need some hours by myself. In those hours, I'm not leaving this relationship. That's not what's happening. I just need the, the like nausea in my stomach and the heat coming out of my ears to cool down so we can have a conversation about this. But Stan is always talking about leading with relief, like lead with relief for your people. In early dating, we don't owe all this to each other. In early dating, it's more like playing a game of match. You know, are, are we- is oh, it's it playing a, a lot of games for a lot of people. It's playing a lot of games. Just that's all it is. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you and I have talked about this before and I just want to mention this to our listeners because I think it's really important. And I think I, I actually, I have no data, no science whatsoever. This is just me saying this. I think women do this more often than men, which is I'm not even going to decide how I feel about you until I know how you feel about me. And to me, that's a really guarded and protected stance that's not like a waste of time, but it's an inaccuracy. It's like saying like, I'm waiting for you to glue that before I'm going to put a nail in it. And that's not the way it gets constructed. Because if I'm aloof and I'm like, I just want you to like me, you have to remember there's another person on the other side of the, the table from you. Right, right. And they're also trying to do the exact same thing, which is figure out whether or not you're a safe person to like. And if they're anxiously attached to you saying, you know, I was really excited to see you because you look really cute. That, okay, okay, good. I can relax around Brooke because she just reminded me she finds me attractive. Mm -hmm. And relaxed people are easier to want to be around. Right. So it's this, it's this little ebb and flow all day long. It's like a very, very micro, you know, movement dance. And the only thing that I want people to know, whether they're dating after grief or just dating in general, is that it's not just your system. And, and anyone who's ever given a presentation, you know, that like after lunch, everybody's like sleepy and tired. And so like, if you have a really good joke, It's going to, the whole rest of the presentation is going to go really well for everyone. If you can get people up and energized and happy and feeling good to be here, your presentation is going to be better. If you have to look out onto a series of like droopy eyed, falling asleep people, the presentation is going to suck for you. That's the interdynamics. 
Mm-hmm. Is if they can feel a little bit more comfortable, you're going to feel a little bit more comfortable. And then it's not going to be hard to say, no, no, I had a great time. I like that guy. Where we know we haven't done a great job of that, or the person we're across the table from is a sociopath. It can only be one of two things. <laughs> you know, but we know we haven't done a good job when we come back from the date and we're like, I don't know, I couldn't tell if he liked me. Anytime somebody says that to me, I know that people were playing a guarded energy. They were not revealing themselves to each other enough. Because it's scary. It's terrifying. It's fucking terrifying. But there's no way out but through. There's no way out but through. Same with grief. Same with grief. (laughs) But let me ask this question. What is the big fear? What's the big fear of what would happen if you were to do what we're talking about? Like what, when you say it's scary, what are we all afraid of? I guess like that you're going to let someone know you and they're going to be like, no, thanks. I'm good. And why would that be so bad? Uh, Cause your ego gets in the way and you want people to like you. But what if we, what, I mean, does everybody have to like us? No. Intellectually but- having this conversation though is very different than what it feels emotionally. Of course, but see if you can finish the sentence. Like what would be so bad if I am across the table from this person and I want them to like me and I can't make them like me or they don't seem to like me. And that is so bad. What is so bad about it? Nothing. Something. Cause I don't want to do it. It's something what like, not even intellectually, just emotionally, like I'm going to go home from this date and not be able to tell whether or not this guy liked me. And I'm going to worry that maybe he isn't going to call me because what, what is the story I'm telling myself about why that is so important? Oh, the story you're telling yourself is because you're not good enough. Yeah. Or I'm going to die alone or nobody will ever love me or, you know, everybody's core story is different, right? I think our core story, our biggest fears can change a little bit with grief. Right. Right. They double down. They double down, but there's also this added layer of complexity around the vulnerability is because you know what it's like to lose someone you love deeply. Absolutely. And you're like, well, maybe I don't need to do that again. (laughs) Right, right, right. There's an extra level of fear. And like, why would I, you, you weren't, I didn't even feel like you liked me. So why would I even bother to call you back? I'm not going on a date with you again. That was too excruciating. I should at least get to feel something better X, Y, Z. Instead of it was probably always going to be this way. My dad just died. Dating is going to feel worse. Like imagine if what our podcast gets to do is tell people like, "Hmm, it might feel worse than it did before because you have this new piece in your system that you're trying to navigate and grow into. Like imagine if everybody just believed that that would be the case going out into dating or having a relationship, you're going to feel more vulnerable. You're going to have to take more care. But that premise of I am going to have to bump up against a feeling that is intolerable for me. I'm not good enough, whatever it is. Everybody's is slightly different, but they all kind of cluster around the same tree. What if we said that's not what dating is? What if we were able to say that dating is a process that isn't about giving someone else the power to reject us for the rest of our lives? That that's just a guy I had dinner with. I'm not going to give him the power to decide whether or not I'm enough of anything. Right. That is where we protect ourselves from the, from that vulnerability. 
You know, it's the same thing. Have you ever had a guy who's like, oh my God, I love you. I worship you. You're the most amazing. When I was 20 and way cuter, I barely met this guy in a bar and he sent a freaking bike messenger with roses to my office. First of all, I worked in a tiny office. It was humiliating with like older people. It was not romantic. It was humiliating. And also he was like, I'm so taken with you. You are amazing. And well, I was feeling myself and I was like, you know what? I am amazing, but you did not know me long enough to know how amazing I am. We met for like 18 minutes in a bar. So whatever this is, bike messenger, roses, like romantic note is made up in your head. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be part of somebody's made up. So I don't want to be part of somebody's made up bad. I'm not good enough for you. This is not enough. I couldn't, I don't want to be part of that. And I don't want to be part of somebody's like Cinderella story. I just want to be in the middle because that's safe. Everybody wants to be seen and known and feel like rock solid love and attachment. Right. Right. I mean, that's it. That's all we want. That's all we want. Simple. Very simple. Solved everybody's problems. What I think we forget is that that is earned space. And that it, yeah. it's, it's uncomfortable getting there. Well, and I think for a lot of us is as a woman, or this is like, I'm gonna be like, I want to know you want to be in that space before I let you in that space. Yeah. And if you can remember that they also want to know that you want to be in that space, that they're trying to get themselves comfortable enough to open up and show you who they are as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I just thought of that I think would be very cool is if we came up with couples on television or movies that we think look like people who are securely attached, the relationships between people where we're like, I don't know what it is, but that's got to be it. They, oh, that, that couple has it going on. Right. So yeah, if people are I- listening and they want to text us about that. Cause I watch some TV, but not all TV. I, I would love, <laughs> I would, okay. So Brooke can't help us. She will not, be I, I will not be helpful. I can like, uh, mad men. I can be like, that, that was a mess. That yes, was a mess. That, <laughs> We're not looking for all the shit shows. I would, or even in books, you know, there are some books that people cite all the time that have these terrible characters, but their relationships are super solid. So if people think about that, if there are people listening and they're like, oh, I wonder about this couple, because I think it's also useful to know what it is that we think we're looking for. And for some of us, it might be that we're looking for our parents. Like one thing that went through my mind that I'm intrigued about is this idea that your dad was married three times, like, and what that was like to see someone start a relationship and come out of a relationship. I mean, you're the, you're the last show, but maybe he has some you know, legacies that he was trying to impart on you about what he learned. So yeah. I'm t- I, I think there's a lot in there that we could keep talking about and discussing. All right. Well, it's been about an hour. So we're it gonna, has, we're going to stop and we're going to do this again. Um, How did that feel? I'm really excited. I feel like this was really good. This was really interesting, kind of different than what we normally talk about, but very important for me. You can find Megan online at grievesmysidehustle.com and on social at Megan Reardon Jarvis. And you can find me online at thegriefcoach.co on social at the underscore grief coach. Or if you want to like see my personal account, that's Brooke L. James. And I'm really excited. We're going to talk with a few more people um, who are 
sharing their stories with us on their experience with dating after loss. So Megan, thank you. This conversation was wonderful as usual. I love talking to you. I got um, you. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.